The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of MIA Equity and Equity New Zealand. Each year, the Equity Foundation delivers more than 100 masterclasses, workshops, film screenings, in conversations, international scholarships, and on set internships free of charge for Equity members. We give our thanks to our principal sponsor, Media Super. Uh, well, hello, everyone. As you know, I'm Alex Giant, and I'm the Program Manager of the Equity Foundation. And today I have the great pleasure of introducing our special guests, Catherine Poulton and Loretta Cullen. Before we commence, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations and pay my respects to all the traditional owners of country and all throughout our country and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we pay our respects to Elders past and present. I want to take a minute to thank the Equity Foundation's principal sponsor, Media Super. Media Super has supported the foundation since our beginning in the early 2000s. They are your industry super fund and they can help you with your superannuation and provide you with financial advice. They're fully equipped to assist you with building your superannuation, so don't hesitate to contact them. And if you don't have the contact details, please let me know and I can give you the relevant details. All right. Before I hand over to Catherine and Loretta, I do want to remind you of a pilot scheme that the Foundation has started in Sydney. Every Monday, our self-test studio in Redfern, Sydney, will be staffed with a professional camera operator and a professional performer reader all day. Equity members are invited to make a one-hour booking at no cost. The idea is to come along with your scripts and the rest will be taken care of for you. Bookings are currently available from 9.30 to 3.30 p.m. every Monday, just go to the Equity Foundation website and look for the self-test link. This program is generously supported by the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales and was created in consultation with the Casting Guild of Australia. Please be aware that this is a pilot program and if it turns out there is a real need for it, we are hoping to make it permanent and roll it out to the other states. And of course, the studios are available for the actors during the rest of the week, but no assistance will be provided during those days. Okay, so please welcome Catherine and Loretta. Thank you. Right. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for your time today. And thank you to all our members for coming on board. So, Catherine, I have some questions for you about the actor and agent relationship. The first one is, what is the process when you meet at a potential new client? What are the, some of the things that you're looking for and deciding factors, you know, in inviting an actor to work with you? Thanks, Loretta, and thanks, Alex, and thank you to everybody for joining. It's an amazing turnout. Um, so when we make decisions about whom we're going to meet with, it's very much uh, based on who else we already represent uh, because our time is finite, or I would say all agents in Australia are boutique companies. So we need to be uh, careful not to double up or have too many people who are going to fit similar kind of briefs. Uh, we also want to want to reflect Australia's diversity and encourage our, our tastemakers to do the same. So that comes into play. Over and above all that, however, would be talent. You know, we may have seen uh, <clears throat> a short film. We may have seen somebody on a stage. So we're attracted to um, what they have to offer <laughs> as an artist. Sure. Now, if an artist want to approach you and work with you, what is the best way to approach you? 
and when is the best time to approach you? Uh, I don't think there's any particular time. I mean, I would avoid, you know, over Christmas, New Year periods, over holiday periods. Um, I used to say avoid pilot season, but pilot season really is no longer. So there's no real time of the year that's better than any other time. Uh, we do get a lot of invites um, from people to, to see their work on stage, which um, I'd be have to be frank in saying I, I often don't get to, but definitely in recent years, a lot of the people we've signed have been um, after we've seen their work on stage. So I think in, in, an invite to a production is a really great thing to do. And in terms of, you know, emailing the agency, I do think it's helpful if there can be an introduction, if, you know, a casting director or if somebody in the industry who has worked with you is willing to, you know, uh, send us a note or write a reference, I do think that we pay attention to that. And I think that, you know, footage is obviously really important, uh, whether it be self-tapes or short films. We're, we unfortunately can't meet anybody these days if we are unable to view content in some manner prior to setting a meeting. Yeah. And for those actors that you have said no to before, um, what's the protocol? When should they, you know, approach you again? And, and if so, when? Yeah, we get asked that a lot. And I think that's a difficult question to answer because it is a little bit on a case-by-case -case basis. I generally, when we write back to people, would generally suggest, you know, 12 to 18 months later. Excuse me. Uh, but if you haven't done anything in that intervening time in terms of further training even, doesn't have to be professional credits, but further work, I don't think there's much point in honesty. It may be that our list has changed slightly, so that's the caveat on that, but often we do say no to people because of the reasons I've mentioned or perhaps they're just not quite ready yet for what we, we have to offer. So further training particularly with uh, younger clients, can be really um, beneficial. Yeah, great. Now, I know sometimes actors can feel really concerned that they haven't been put up for a job by their agent and don't know how to approach the agent about the topic. What are the, some of the ways that you recommend on how we could do it? Look, I think I, I would have to be honest in saying to you that I, I have spoken to other agents about this and I do know some people get a little bit defensive about it and it's kind of understandable, I guess, because that's our jobs to get people audition opportunities. That is part of our jobs at least. Um, however, from my personal opinion, and I think I share this view with my colleagues whom I work with, we want to know that you are actively engaged in pursuing a creative endeavours and in furthering your own careers. You know, we want, we want it to be a partnership. We work in tandem with our artists, um, not in conflict or, I hope, with them. So we welcome uh, our artists asking us these questions. Um, uh, you know, I think if you're doing it every day, it could be problematic. Uh, but certainly if you consider you're really right for something, if you've heard about it, there's no harm in asking, look, I've heard about this project, do you know about it? I think it's perfectly valid. And I, I would say that there are occasions where we find out about things that way. Um, you know, some, some casting teams can be very can hold their cards very close to their chests for whatever reason. So I'm more than open to it. And there may be really legitimate reasons why people haven't been seen, 
it can often be about profile, you know, an offer's already, you know, things have been financed because certain people of profile are attached. And we will generally know that information and can share it. And I think that that can put an artist's mind at rest, you know. They know that that was outside of their control and there was never going to be an opportunity to audition. So I think it's all about a two-way communication between agent and artist and I'm all for it. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, what are some of the misconceptions that you want to clear up about agents and their role? Um, look, I mean, you know, we get we get fairly maligned in terms of uh, representations in film and TV of agents. We're always uh, uh, money hungry, kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, like, I get it uh, with Hollywood, and you know, that's some interesting. Um, teams that I've dealt with. Uh, I don't know that there's too many misconceptions. I do think when, sometimes when young artists join us, they're really scared to um, pick up the phone and I think that that is to everybody's detriment. So, I mean, you know, it's it should be a, a, a shared pathway and uh, there should be certainly, you know, I've been doing this over 20 years and I've, amassed a lot of knowledge so I would hope that that gets respected uh, by our clients but at the same time it's their careers they're the ones that need to make decisions ultimately about what they do and don't do what they wish to pursue and I think it's really important that agents have are open in that conversation and to be frank with you I think that most agents out there are do come from that place and uh, want success for their artists and are operating with integrity. So, yeah. Yeah, now, as an agent, do you sit down with your actors and, like, have a look at their five-year plan or 10-year plans or how do you approach that? Well, obviously, when we sign people, we do that um, to get an understanding and particularly um, both with young clients who've never worked professionally before and with clients that we're, we're coming in later in their careers that might have been with another agency or whatever um, to get an understanding of what their expectations of us are and what their hopes uh, are for the future and certainly every client of ours has uh, different ambitions you know they're all very different individuals and they may be pursuing certain sectors of the industry more than other sectors you know some people really want to book an amazing ad other people I would never send for advertising. So, yes, we do have those conversations. Um, with some of our Vithia clients, it's very hard to kind of find the time and that moment to have that meeting. I'm just saying I have to get a particular artist in the door tomorrow because we really need to talk about it. There's so much going on with them and we really need to talk about it. So sometimes it's, um, it's us really sort of haranguing them uh, to, to think ahead and not just think about what has arrived in their inbox in the last week. So sometimes it's initiated by you and then sometimes initiated by the client. So I suppose it depends where they're at, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, there's certainly not conversations we want to have every three weeks with the same client, but I think it's really important to have them you know, every 12 months, whatever it may be, uh, with everybody, uh, because people's uh, ambitions uh, change and the industry is in such a state of flux that um, 
managing expectations is really important in that climate, really. Mm, okay. With your history, I mean, with your experience in the industry, what have you found as some of the key qualities that successful actors have those over those who haven't had much luck or just haven't, you know, achieved where they want to be yet? Look, I, I think for our artists that do very well, it's a combination of talent, drive and charisma. I think it's, uh, I'm sorry, my office is being a bit noisy. Can you, are you picking up on that? Should I tell them to be quiet? <laughs> is it coming through? It's coming up a little bit. Yes, it is coming up a little One bit. One second, I'm going to tell them to yeah. be quiet. Sorry about that. What was I saying? Can you remind me? <laughs> Key qualities of those successful actors that you've worked with? Yeah, talent, charisma, ambition, really. Um, I have worked with really talented people over the years that perhaps just don't have the drive or any kind of business know-how and that, you know, it's like succeeding at school, really. It's not just about how intelligent you are. It's about how hard you work. So... I think it's it's those those things. I mean, there's a certain je ne sais quoi about artists that are working at a very high level that um, you know you want to watch them. They're they're mag magnetic, and it's really hard to put your finger on what that quality may be. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's those three 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 things in equal measure talent, ambition and intelligence um, are really very important. Obviously, people, beautiful people do well. I mean, I think that's just natural that we like to, we like to watch, you know, people who are beautiful on our screens and, um, but that's not, not what it's all about, obviously. That's, that's not, you know, a lot of people uh, succeed as character actors and I find them really interesting people to work with. Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is also important to have a good understanding of the business and how it's just, you know, how it runs. And Yeah, that's right. Without kind of making that your primary focus no. um, because artistry is so important and so valued and, uh, you know, it's really what attracts me to my client base their abilities on stages or on screen. But it is really important in this day and age of social media to really have an understanding of how you're presenting to the world and how to market yourself, how to find your niche, um, which is, it's really quite challenging to navigate, I think, uh, because everything's out there in a really public way and a kind of mystery that movie stars used to have has kind of gone. Um, so it's 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 a little bit of a navigation, uh, but people who pay attention to that and, and are showing some savviness around that uh, obviously have some level of success often through that. Um, and, you know, that's evolved so much in the time I've been an agent. So I, I think that it's, uh, it's about us all kind of learning about that collectively, to be honest. Yeah, well, that's a great segue into my next question about social media. How do you think, you know, in this day and age, an actor should use social media to, to market themselves? Look, I think that really varies. And I we certainly have artists who are not on socials at all and uh, have some sort of fear around it, um, which I can understand. And I, that's their choice, their prerogative. Uh, I think if an artist isn't confident about how they present themselves in the world, then it's going to impact on their work. 
confidence is really key self-belief is key so if it's really important to be on your socials every day to help with your confidence well and good if it terrifies you and you want to stay off I'm all for that as well um I think for, for art obviously a lot of our young artists use it as a tool and uh it has really aided um their careers um my colleague Tanya in the office is sort of heads up all our publicity inquiries, all our, inquiries, all our endorsement inquiries, and she does a lot around sort of media training for socials and does that in tandem with unit publicists or, you know, distribution publicity teams to make sure that we're on brand for the project that's being promoted, but we're also protecting the interests of the individual artist and they're presenting themselves um, in their best light while working for the project. Um, yeah, there's certainly conversations that need to be had with some artists around, please don't post that, please take that down, or can you not do that, or, you know, have your private Instagram account for your friends and have your public one where you only post about industry. And, you know, we, we have worked with very uh, young clients who, look, I can think of a couple of occasions where I've had to dig down and get things taken off people's socials before uh, an offer of employment would come through. It's quite challenging to navigate. And uh, we call upon experts around us in, um, you know, at the companies we work with and uh, publicity teams we work with and attorneys we work with to help guide us through that because that is ever an ever-changing landscape. Yeah. Is there anything in general that you would say don't put up on your socials or is that too, is that list too long? Well, I mean, you know, or is it just common sense really? I think it's common sense. I mean, obviously there's a lot of, fear about being cancelled or whatever. And I think that I, you know, Twitter's sort of fallen by the wayside a bit in terms of our artists using it. And it just became so politicised that I just kind of wonder how people could go on there day in and day out without it kind of affecting them psychologically. And and I, I, I think that's really problematic if you start getting into like a fight, a political fight online. I get why certain people find themselves in that situation but I I you know it kind of goes back a little bit to that idea of maintaining some level of um, inaccessibility as an artist you know you want to make sure you're not the cult of personality isn't over overtaking your abilities as an actor because actors are really about playing many roles wearing many guises and I think if they become if it's all, all about the celebrity, you lose the mystique a bit. So there's a little bit of guidance around that. Um, sometimes, you know, there's too many selfies and we, we want to make sure that uh, there's a variety in their public uh, uh, persona, you know, supporting causes, um, you know, posting about a great um art show you've been to or, you know, about your holiday or about, you know, this this project you've just done without it just always being about somebody being on the beach in a bikini, you know? Yeah. That's, that's my personal view. <laughs> and do you find that casting directors and producers and directors, you know, look into someone's profile before they sign them on or even get them to, to audition? Is that part of the practice, do you think? I think it is on some level. I don't think casting directors are sitting on people's socials and making decisions around getting them in for jobs on that. 
Mm. Uh, but I do think that, particularly, I think in the genre world, you'll find maybe if it's down to two artists who've got similar kind of uh, work histories, the person with 200,000 more followers may get the job of the person with less. But I also think that that's going to shift. That's just a, about where we are right now. Mm. The, the importance of social media is really shifting constantly. So I think that to get really caught up on that and not be going to voice classes or going to the theatre or, you know, working on your craft is just yeah. so counterproductive. And I think that a lot of people get really hung up about how they present, how they look, and and you see that in tapes. You see people being really self-conscious in tapes and it doesn't get them the job. So I don't think one should be too worried about how many followers one has. One should be more worried about working on, on, on the craft. Yeah, well, while we're on the topic of self-tapes, I mean, that's the norm now. And when you're doing self-tapes, you obviously don't get the feedback, you know, from the casting director that, you know, you would when you were in a room. So... And I know sometimes for me, I, I only get the opportunity to, to only submit one or two takes. So what's the best way to approach it? Do one take that's, you know, fairly your interpretation close of the script and then one completely flip it, you know, to give a, a completely different variation or? It does depend on the project. It depends on who's casting it and how they work. Uh, it depends on the team that it's been submitted to so there's this is like such a new landscape really I know self-tape's been going on for a long time and as a Melbourne-based agent with certainly not all our clients are Melbourne-based but a, a good whack of them are uh, we've been in this self-tape world for well before COVID because somehow all the casting directors who cast things that are shooting in Melbourne almost are Sydney-based so it's something we've navigated for a long time with our artists and I'm talking to you from our self-tape facility at our office because, you know, this expectation that everybody was going to be able to self-tape at home, even our clients in their 70s and 80s, was unrealistic. Um, so I have very strong opinions about self-taping. I think that the, there's a lot of pros to it. You know, you can muck around with your self-tape for a lot longer that you can, if you go into a casting suite, you might get one or two shots at it. Um, but that's but time is money, you know, and that's that that's hard on the artist. My best advice is to research the project that you're going in on, who the showrunner is, who's written it, who's producing it, what studio, what network, so that you pitch it with a bit more with a bit of forethought I think the biggest challenge we see now with self-tape after self-tape is that people they they get the size and often you know first round sometimes we'll, we'll do our best to get a whole episode or a whole feature film script to artists but we don't always have that opportunity with first round auditions and people read the sides and they think about how they relate to that character and that moment and the, the arc of that scene but they don't relate it to what may be going on in the rest of the episode or the film, who's written it, who, who, who the team is coming together to make this project. And, you know, they might read a comic scene of the drama or make some really kind of basic mistakes that 
then waste so much of their own time and energy. So I think that's the best advice. And it is a little bit like plain Pluto because you're trying to piece together and you don't have all the information. Uh, but it's a very, very common mistake. So if you're going for something uh, type of a teeth is making, yeah, probably really wise, Loretta, to go ahead and do something fairly standard and then do something like off the wall. You yeah. know, because he's going to respond to that. You would have seen a lot of his work, you know, his background, you know, what kind of, um, what floats his boat. But, you know, I mean, if you're going for neighbours, maybe not. Like, you know, it depends what it is. So, yeah, thank you for that. Well, what about showreels? In your opinion, what makes a good showreel these days? Well, look, I'm not sure about other teams, but we certainly have moved around away from showreels per se these days. Um, So, a lot of our co representation partners overseas um, will present individual links of, um, you know, on, on Pepper's digital profiles. Um, you know, a link to their work on X show and Y feature film, etc. Um, and I've started doing that here too because I also I think you know we used used to because we didn't have uh, the the capacity digitally to have a lot of to store all that content previously. Um, we would get these we would edit these show reels together for our artists because you know we felt it was partly our responsibility to do it and put some music on it blah blah I don't think that's really that helpful anymore because they get out of date incredibly quickly um you might be going for um you know a heartfelt uh drama and you've got all this comedy on your showreel that's completely you know might be really great content but it's just not the right content for that project. So I find it really helpful to have, and obviously you have to have the experience and the, the credits behind you, but to have multiple uh, links that we can share. So, you know, I, I just did that yesterday for a client where I was had a conversation with him about what I was going to share with this particular manager um, to get a particular thing across the line. Um, so that's what I would recommend. I mean, um obviously as I say if you don't have a lot of professional uh footage behind you that that can be a challenge but for more established artists that's definitely the way we go now yeah so for an actor who don't have um, many credits then uh well professional footage would you recommend that they do like a comedic you know reel or a dramatic reel you know something that's similar in genre that can be sent off if um, if they're seeking representation, self tape is really great, and yeah, a couple of contrasting self tapes is generally what we'll look for because some people are really good at a certain thing, but mm-hmm. and it might be quite close to who they are naturally. But then trying to try and get them to move away from that, you can sometimes see that they need training there or they just don't have that breadth. Um, so that would be certainly my recommendation. We don't publicly share or we don't share self tapes a lot. Um, with casting directors, et cetera, except, you know, for the project they're casting. But sometimes I'll ask an artist, can I share the self-date you did with the, for this project, with this with this casting director for this project? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, some people really prefer watching self-tapes uh, to judge an artist off because, you know, it's up close. 
the folk, the camera's just focused on them. Um, I'm just wary of like presenting a lot of self tapes because, and nothing else, because it can sort of show up a lack of experience. So we we have to be very specific. Uh, I think we're very specific and thoughtful about how we use those kind of assets on behalf of an artist and with whom we share them. Okay. I'm going to move on to some agent and casting director questions. So I'm interested in finding out how you work with them. Like, do you have regular contacts with them and talk about, you know, um, informally about roles and what's coming up and and who's good for test um, for what project coming up? How do you work? Yeah, so obviously each casting director is different, you know, having been working in Australia for a long time now, we we know them all and we we. Some people are more open in the way they think than others. So we we approach it in really different ways depending on who we're talking to. Um, the joy of being quite an established agency now is that we get an understanding quite early on, on not all, but most projects, you know, long before, sometimes before a casting director's on board or before any briefs go out, we're aware that this con con uh, project is at de in development with a particular uh, production company um, we might know you know x name is attached so the best thing for us to do is to read content to be honest because if we have the content early on we can make sensible helpful suggestions to casting directors um, which is what they want right we're all working on the same we all want the same thing, you know, they want the best artist possible for their project. We want our artists to, to be employed in uh, quality projects. So, uh, yeah, I I think all of us here at this agency collectively read a lot of content as early as possible. And that's the real joy in now co-representing with a good number of US and UK teams that we often get sent material so yeah, for some reason, oh no, the card the script's not available, but we've already been given it by, you know, CAA or whoever, and we already know what's going on. We already know who's attaching, and we can be really strategic about this supporting role or that because we know where they're going to pitch it age-wise or whatever it may be. So we do a lot of work around that. We also have most of the casting directors will tell me up front, oh, I've got this coming up, I'll be doing that, you know. I can't tell you who's attached, but this will be happening in October or whatever. So you can start thinking about who's available. And they'll often come to us and say, is so-and-so available across these dates? And, you know, because they're putting availability lists together and you can start kind of asking questions and piecing together where they're at on projects and, uh, and uh, try and be as helpful as possible and front-footed as possible. Having said all that, yes, of course, we get briefs as well and we Mm -hmm. It's really important to respond to those briefs in a timely and thoughtful fashion and, uh, you know, just stay proactive. Yeah. Do you, do you expect the actors, you know, to maintain that relationship with the casting director as well? Like if they haven't been um, asked to do a role for quite a while, you know, um, should they be checking with you to see what's happening or... Certainly artists do that and I think that sometimes people over, casting directors are obviously very important and a lot of them, I, I, I value my working relationships with them dearly, 
But sometimes they just don't get the sale. You know, they might have you on their availability list. They've presented you to their team because they are a fan of your work, but the network has decided they want X, Y, and Z, you know. Uh, there's a lot of battling that goes on now. People have to have international profile and therefore, you know, certain people are going to fall to that supporting role level rather than lead level. Casting directors don't get a lot of say over that really. So, um, you know, we encourage sometimes the younger artists to just do a few of those casting director workshops to get themselves out there. But I also think you should be paying to get an opportunity to self-tape for casting directors. It's casting directors' jobs to know who you are. So that's fine when you're like 18 and straight out of school, but, you know, I'm not going to be sending my profiled older artists off to um, casting director workshops. Yeah, of course, yeah. And um, for those actors who want to work in the US, is it better to go over there with some credits? You know, that's always been the way and the landscape has changed so much. What's your recommendation? The landscape has changed a great deal. Um, nobody should be taking a meeting for representation in the US right now. Uh, certainly traditionally we have asked uh, people to wait. Uh, when we, we get asked that question a lot, obviously, and uh, we ask people to wait until they have a project that has some level of traction. And since the age of the streamers, there's more opportunity for that project to break through. You know, people might now see an artist on a, I mean, I'll take Colin from accounts as an example because it just kind of exploded, particularly in the UK marketplace, where, you know, it was a little Australian comedy and it's had quite a bit of international reach. So that's a project where we can get people's attention, whereas um, you just, you never actually really know what's going to, you think you know, oh, this is really great, this will cut through, but you don't always know what's going to cut through. So yeah, look, certainly some of our best sort of international signings have come off the back of uh, a film festival. You know, if you get in that, that indie project that that does a Toronto or Berlin or, you know, gets that exposure and gets a bit of heat out of those festivals, that's a really wonderful way to get somebody signed at the right level at the right moment. So, um you know, you can trip over a manager on every street corner in LA, so it's fairly easy to get signed when you go over, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're not all great. They're not all, you know, you've got to be careful about who you sign with. Yeah, and you obviously have connections, that, you know, that can help your clients with, you know, um, setting up meetings with um, agents and managers over there. So my question is, how do you work with your with um, the US managers and US agents? Well, look, we work with a range of US managers and US agents, and some of our clients have very uh, we have very long standing working relationships with with some teams. Um, I mean, I'm all for it because the artist is going to get sent more content; they're going to have more coverage. There's no way one agent can cover you globally effectively in this day and age with so much content out there. So we like to work in tandem with our co-representation partners. And certainly some of these longstanding relationships have been very valuable to me and to artists. And um, I think that we all bring different strengths to teams. And certainly you have, the challenge is finding a team that you want to work with. 
as well as being a be of benefit to the artist because if the team's not talking to one another, I think that's counterproductive for an artist. But we often end up talking to those reps as much, if not more, than we talk to our clients. So you're going to want to pick up the phone to them. I was talking this morning to an agent in LA about how we're going to make anything happen for this artist who is sad right now and, you know, they're going to London and there are certain meetings that we can make happen in that space. So, you know, we were dividing and conquering our list to make sure that the artist is covered in a territory where they are not repped. So that's the best kind of scenario when you're all working on the same team for the same end goal. Um, that's great to hear. Working collaboratively is the key, I guess. Yeah, like in the early days, I think we encountered some people who were very sort of defensive and territorial and kind of a bit weird about it. But um, I, I think the marketplace has changed too. It's become so global that people really, they want to have artists in Australia and they want to have artists in the UK um, and they're a lot more collaborative. Um, I think there's uh, yeah, some really, really great uh, reps that we work with that um, I'm pleased to have in my, in our artist's corner. Um, now, with what's happening over in the US with the writer's strike and the actor's strike, how do you see that affecting us here in Australia? Um, look, it's been affecting us for a while, I think. I think that uh, in honesty, uh, in terms of content this year, it's been very slow. And I think that started kicking in around last December. There was no pilot season at all this year. Uh, Cameron, my colleague, and I took a meeting with an attorney in Feb and he said to us that usually by that time of year, he would have done about 25 deals. And this year he'd done two, he had, uh, had closed two deals. So it's a, a good indication of, uh, and the streamers knew what they were going to do. The streamers knew they were going to play hardball. The streamers knew there was going to be a strike. So they stopped commissioning content quite some time ago. Um, how that's going to play out over the next six months, I think it's going to be really challenging, if I'm really honest. I don't think that this strike is going to end next week. I think there's a lot of differences of opinion around who's right and who's wrong and, and no middle ground going on right now it right now like I don't know how it's going to impact all our artists for our SAG-AFTRA members who are not Australian based I'm being told right now they can't do anything in Australia so that's going to impact on Australia for our SAG-AFTRA artists who are Australian based they can still work on uh, APCA, AFCA contracts here so there might be some benefit to some of our local artists because US imports can't work here right now. Mm. Um, there's a few things going on right now that are commissioned by international streamers and I do feel, you know, a little conflicted around that right now. They're, they're fully entitled to be working here and employing artists on APCA and AFCA agreements right now. But, I, I, there's a, you know, how's that going to play out long term? I don't know. So, um, yeah, we might see sort of some low budget stuff being commissioned here because there's a little gap going on where there's not enough con content coming through and that might create opportunities. I remember thinking the world was like the sky was falling in with COVID and that didn't really happen. So we might see those, those benefits. It's pretty new right now and we don't quite know what it means for Australia. But I think, you know, with Apples Never Fall and Mortal Kombat shutting down with um, Metropolis being cancelled, there's clearly a slowdown going on 
um, it's a moment of reckoning and it needed to happen and we'll all come out the other side of it. But yeah, it's probably not the time to get signed in LA right now. <laughs> so what do you recommend the actors do during this, this quieter time for, for all of us? Well, you know, working on stage is a wonderful thing to be doing. Yes. Um, <laughs> so that a lot of stage casts like 12 months ahead, you know, but we're just like redoubling our efforts in that space. We do a lot of like advertising voiceover work. None of that's impacted, as I say, for a lot of the like lower budget feature film work here. They can go ahead. That's really great. It's a great time for a general meet and greet when maybe you wouldn't have had time to do that before. It's a great time to be working on your skill set, isn't it? Um, yeah. It'll pass. It'll pass. Yeah, us actors are very resilient. So actually, I want to ask you another question about, you know, voiceovers and animation. There is a huge market out there. Um, and for actors who really want to get into that space, you know, what are the some things that they can do? Yeah, look, uh, that's been a bit of a growth market for us. And that's really exciting um, to see companies like Leica Photon, who are producing just such wonderful content in Australia on like a tenth of a Pixar budget that are getting seen internationally. They're, you know, happy, feel-good family stories, which we need more of right now. And like the joy of it is that the artist might be booked for a day or a week and then they can go off and do something else. And they've, you know, they've they've made some coin and um yeah it's a specific skill set uh I'm all for I'm all for vocal coaching dialect coaches voice coaches it's a mystery what they do and to me it's a mystery and certain people work so well with certain coaches and then don't work at all well with other coaches I think it's just such a skill set to have it's going to help you access mid-Atlantic US UK accents the more accents you've got the better so working with uh, dialect coaches, voice coaches, it's a really wonderful thing to do. Go out there and see that content. There's some great animation in Myth this year. Um, obviously, there's some people out there like Abby Holmes who do like uh, voiceover workshops and help you put a reel together. We're certainly doing that right now. We're, we're adding, we're setting up some like uh, voice demo uh, recordings for our artists. Um, in this downtime so that we can get them out there and, and people can see what they can do in that capacity. So, Well, that's great. Um, I think I have a question here about headshots. You know, how are we approaching them these days? Um, and our casting directors is really looking at more of your selfies? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I think headshots are so expensive. Just have to say that they're so expensive. Stuff, everything's costing more and more money. They are important. We like we suggest people do them every three years or so for adults. You know, a little bit more frequently for teenagers. Uh, I think the most important thing is to find a photographer you feel comfortable with. You know that you're going to look natural in front of the camera. For I'm all for like minimal makeup, an outdoor shoot, natural lighting. I'm all for those kind of shots. Um, it amazes me that some of the um, acting schools still turn out these incredibly dark black and white headshots, people in skivvies looking very arty. And they're not really right for the industry these days. So internationally, it's very much about a colour headshot. 
yeah, look, I, I think people get really hung up about it. It's really great to uh, the rate that because people cannot judge their own headshots. Um, and I couldn't <laughs> do that for myself, so I get it. Great. And I want to ask about um, working, you know, in the UK. Are there much opportunities in the UK for Australian actors now, considering the US is a bit quiet at the moment? In recent years, there's obviously been a lot of streaming content made in the UK and Europe. Some of those shows can continue right now. Some of those can't. Uh, you know, we've seen opportunities on some of those shows for Australians um, where Australians have been prioritised before Americans or say like a House of the Dragon or whatever, they were very keen to cast Australians over um, US. That was partly a, a sad thing and partly about skill sets and training here. As UK reps are a little less open traditionally than US reps. You know, I think US reps are very worried that they're going to like miss out on the next big thing, but the Brits are circumspect by nature, so that they'll be specific about whom they'll sign. Um, it is a very busy uh, marketplace, I think, for people who whose passion is and work experiences across stage and screen. The West End is obviously very appealing to a lot of people. And I, I I worked in London in my 20s and I found it a very vibrant, exciting place to be. So I would like to forge more relationships there than we currently have, although we, we do have some great ones. We just signed a client this week with a UK team that I've been trying to work with for about eight years, so it's really exciting for us. There's still challenges about working rights. People with EU passports, UK passports, Irish passports, are you know an easier sell in that marketplace which makes a lot of sense but yeah look I think there's a bit more shared history with the UK a lot of stuff that's been commissioned in Australia in recent years has been a UK cobra right or it's gone out on a sky tv or an itv or whatever so the the the, the uh, teams there the casting teams there are a bit more familiar with Australian Australians than you would think and that's certainly given people opportunities to um, pursue that marketplace. But it, I think in terms of getting co-repped there, it's going to be about the passport you hold, the work experience you've had. And, like, you've got to kind of spend a bit of time in the UK to nurture that relationship. So if you have no <coughs> plans to spend ex uh, <coughs> excuse me, extended time in the UK, then it's probably counterproductive to be pursuing representation. If you're going to be there for a good amount of time, then, um, yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely worth pursuing. I have a great question here for you, Catherine. What is the favourite part of your job and what does your ideal workday look like? My favourite part of the job, there's probably a couple. I love it when somebody gets the job. So uh, my <laughs> ideal workday is when somebody gets the job. Um, <laughs> of course. One of my uh, staff, former staff, she complained to me that I never, you know, because I was so always concerned of like covering everything and, you know, making sure everybody was getting a job. And she always complained I never celebrated enough. I then moved on to the next problem. So she bought me a little bell. So I have to ring this bell when people get a job. It's really silly, but it makes it sort of reminds me to just take a moment and realize that that's been a collective endeavor and. You know, it, it could just be somebody had always wanted to book an ad and been going to ad castings for 10 years and never booked an ad. Oh. 
and he got mad like two weeks ago and I rang the bell, you know, whereas other people, I wouldn't ring the bell for an ad, but for him, I rang the bell. Uh, so that's the, that's a really exciting part of my job. Another really part of the job I love is helping developmental talent um, cut through. Uh, there's a few people I have signed when they've been very, very young um, and they have international careers of note now and um, that's hugely rewarding. Um, there's some artists I've signed off community theatre in Melbourne who are now working uh, professionally and, you know, one in particular was working at Woolies before that. I, I, that's a really important thing to me to, to give people opportunity who might not necessarily have had opportunities. So I love that. That's great to hear. Now, Catherine, I have another question here about showreels. Um, the member of us, you've mentioned, Catherine, that sending off self-tape is a great way for casting people to see an actor, most recent up-to-date work. Would the best use of a showreel be for an actor who is less experienced in the industry and who has no previous TV or film footage who is seeking representation? Yeah, so that kind of showreel would be like a collection of self-tapes, right, because there's nothing else. Um, and in terms of getting signing, getting signed, rather, uh, that's a really great place to start and I would definitely pay attention to that. Um, I'd also, like, watch scenes from a short film or something. So, yeah, we'd only send self-tapes, like I was saying before, for a profile artist if we, we were trying to tick a particular box or get somebody an amazing producer to pay attention or something. Um, yeah, does that answer that question? Yeah, I think so. Um, I've got a, I've got a one or two questions here. I might just jump in if that's all right. Yes. Um, do you have any control over contracts with the streaming companies about residual fees? Is there any any options, or it's it's fairly straightforward? In Australia or in the US? Oh, probably either both. Well, I made contact with one of your industrial officers yesterday about that particular matter. Uh, I think we're seeing we're seeing Australian contracts disintegrating right now. If I'm really honest, in the face of the streamers, I have two deal memos on my desk that I won't sign because I've got clauses in there that are not standard to our agreements, and I have very bullish lawyers and studios telling me that they're legal and I need to sign. I have my artists sign. Over residual structures, no, we're not getting any say in, in our marketplace. It's, it's covered by the ATRA. I know extended licence periods are being negotiated with the union on a case-by-case -case basis. We're already, even though the restructuring of the ATRA was 2015, it's already out of date. And I reckon we're struggling in the face of that. We really are. Um, internationally, with the streamer deals, I generally rely on my very learned um, uh, attorneys who are on most of my international teams who educate me on this. Um, but I've been really amazed at those very powerful big law firms who sometimes really have no say over this either. The residual buy on these, on these streamers, it's like that's why they're striking. It's a really big problem and the problem is that we don't have access to the figures, so we don't know what sort of money what shows are making. So I don't know what the answer to this will be, but it's it's hugely problematic, and um, yeah, it's 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 very hard to hold the line 
in the face of very powerful multinationals. We've got so many questions. We could go over another hour or so, but I do have uh, just one put Anthony Wong was going to ask one very quick question because we've only got about two minutes. Hi, Catherine and Loretta. Thank you so much for this generous time. It's been so valuable. My question was just to drill down on that question a bit for asked a bit earlier. You said if an actor was less experienced, they didn't have film or television footage, they could do a showreel of self-tapes. What about a showreel of professionally shot scenes rather than just self-tapes? Does that make any difference or would you prefer to see self-tapes because the camera is only on the actor that's uh, seeking representation? I think professionally shot self-tapes, self-tapes, professionally shot scenes, like little mini um, short films, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, mini, like single scenes that have been shot with another actor where we do see the other scene partner in the scene as well. Yeah, I don't mind them, but I also think I've had artists do that and it's cost them a lot of money and I don't know, sometimes it's a, it sounds a bit mean, but it's a little bit of, it's like a it's like a drama class that's shown and sometimes it's, you know, I had this producer say to me once, why don't they ever, why don't they ever, she was talking about drama school showreels, she was like, why don't they ever just have them talking in the kitchen? You know, she was sort of saying there's people crying and there's blood and gut and it's all very dramatic because the actors want to show their, their greatest skill set. And sometimes you just want to see their truth and you don't want all these layers, you know, and I feel sometimes they can get a bit navel-gazy, these, these exercises, and a little counterproductive. Um, that's not always the case. But, yeah, I think you can spend a lot of money on that and I don't know how helpful it is. Certainly, I've definitely sent, like, you know, X, Y and Z footage from shows here to US teams to try and get people repped. And often people go, can you just send me a self-tape with US accent? I just want to see them and they're off foot sometimes because the Australian production values on, you know, some commercial TV can be a bit low um, and they will see that as reflecting poorly on the artist, which of course it should not, but it can be something to be wary of. So, um, yeah, I think as an exercise, it's a great thing to do as an exercise to see how you are on camera, to see if you're particularly stage experienced and need to have more experience about how the camera's viewing you and what how you need to pull back. I think that's a great thing to be doing. Um, but you can just disappear down a, a, a hole there and not come out for air. You've met people do that for like three weeks and I, they haven't sent yourself tape. I don't understand. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Well, I think I'll just hand back to Loretta for a sort of a, just a final comment or a final question before we, we, we finish. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Catherine. It's been a great session. Uh, one final question I have for you is, is it a problem having a separate VO agent? as well and still be on your books as an actor? Um, it's a little bit of a problem. We do have, a, I think, three clients who have that, and they that is because they were with uh, prior agencies who you know, the agent retired or whatever, and the, that agency didn't cover voiceover work, so they had that. Um, it's a pre-existing relationship, and I don't want to trample on any pre-existing relationships that are working to the artist's advantage. So in those instances, we just don't cover voiceover content. Uh, because for us, if we're finding a, new, a client without it, we would ask them not to get a voiceover agent. 
because it is something that we, a space we work quite hard in, uh, particularly animation, I think uh, the, the voiceover agents are not necessarily covering narrative stuff as much as they are covering commercial stuff. So that's just our view. I think that different agencies would have different opinions on that. Well, thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Alex, for um, organising the session today. Well, thank you to um, Catherine, Loretta and all who uh, attended today. It's uh, always a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do these uh, podcasts, uh, these live streams. So really thank you all. And of course, Media Super. So of course, quick uh, sort of thank you to Loretta and Catherine. Thank you so much. Thank you for everybody's time and thanks for organising it. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by our principal sponsor, Media Super and the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work we do, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Equity Foundation Australia on Facebook and Instagram.